Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What we call winning on the way out. So the buyer, the seller, the, the team, and the clients all have to be a good fit. And as I talked to other companies as, as we were talking about it, I started to focus more and more on that, about what is their culture like? How do they treat each other? How do they treat clients? And it's not an exact science, but I just felt like I had an obligation to my teammates and to my clients to find a good fit for them. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Hey, business buffs, Tyler here. Get ready to take a deep dive into the world of entrepreneurship with our guest, Steve Juton. We're peeling back the layers on selling your business, navigating the bumpy emotional road to success, and why having a coach might just be your golden ticket. Trust me, this is one conversation you won't wanna miss. Stay locked in, because Think Business with Tyler is about to get real. Hey, Steve, welcome to Think Business with Tyler. How is it going today? Thanks, Tyler. I'm delighted to be here. Things are great. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm excited to have you too. Can we get into first? I'd love to learn a little bit about you, maybe a personal tidbit and then what you do professionally now. Absolutely. So when my wife uh, wrote my bio for me one time, she opened by saying, my husband is a a lifelong learner. His bookshelf, like the one behind me, is filled with a multitude of how-to books because I'm kind of one of those guys. I like to know how to do things. And that's my my tidbit. And it's carried over into business. I'm naturally curious and love learning about businesses. And that has been my background. I was a consultant for a long time and then a financial advisor for a long time. And I just love learning about businesses. It's one of the one of the favorite things that I get to do. Yeah, I can relate to that so much. Uh, being a CPA and many years ago, I had my own CPA practice and now business coaching. I think the thing that excites me the most is when you work with a client and they every client like has a different business model or a different way of doing what they're doing. And I think that just like fires me up. It's like so fun to learn about how they're approaching their way of making a living or building a business or whatever. So I can relate to that so much. That's cool. Hey, so speaking of that, you had a financial advising firm that you sold, and now you're doing business coaching. Can you kind of take us through that? I mean, what what took you from doing the financial advising to go into into helping companies exit uh, their businesses? Sure. So I was a fee only fiduciary financial advisor for 22 plus years, 
And it was just time because I was, I wanted new challenges and I loved my clients and enjoyed working with them, but I needed a new challenge. I just needed a new adventure. And so about three years before my final exit, I sat down with my team and I said, I have good news and bad news for you guys. <laughs> and Amy, who was my senior advisor, said, uh-oh, what is this going to look like? And I said, no, no, no. The good news is you're getting rid of me. The bad news <laughs> is, is you're getting rid of me. So we had a good time, but but it was just time. And, and they understood it because I had done it for a long enough time. And, and sometimes we just need new challenges. We just need something, another hill to climb that is different. Yeah. That's cool. You had that awareness. I think the sad thing is sometimes, and we'll get more into this when we're talking about exits. Sometimes those exits are forced upon you and they're not in this, they're not, you're not the one making the decision on the exit. It's the circumstances are forcing you into it. I'm a big sports fan and I'm always curious when a really good athlete has to step away from the game. Yeah. Michael Jordan is an example, you know, or, or almost anybody. And and I've always felt like it's sort of sad when they wait too long, right? When their game is gone. I hope that wasn't the case for me, but I, I sort of took those lessons. It was not stimulating to me anymore. It was time to go do something different. And I had three rules when I was in business that I'll tell you about if you're interested. But as a financial advisor, I just felt like I wanted to serve my clients well. And if I couldn't do it with enthusiasm, I was afraid my game would slip. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those three rules before I get into get into you uh, you about growing your business. What what are those three rules? I'm dying of curiosity. Yeah. Sorry, I was I didn't mean to set you up for it. But that was, was a hook. Giving, that was a I teaser. I was giving you a teaser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I started out, and it was just myself and an assistant, and then the business crew, which we'll talk about. And at one point, I had four advisors and a total of nine people in my team. But as I grew and I added people, it occurred to me that I wanted everybody to do things the same way, not just the policies and procedures, but the same way of interacting with everybody, clients and vendors and each other. And so I created my three rules. The three rules were, one, always assume good intentions, and that covers a multitude of issues. And number two, practice a blameless problem solving. Oh, I like that. Because we we get so much further if we're not trying to find blame. And the third one was always put the clients first. And so, for example, my operations manager who came from a, a different financial firm, she struggled with that because she was coming from an environment that apparently had an awful lot of finger pointing. So when I went to interview her, I gave her the three rules and she sort of stopped me and she said, I'm not sure I know how to do that. So we worked on it, but everybody that was in the team that was on the team had to uh, adhere to this. And if it wasn't a good fit for them, for whatever reason, that was okay. But in terms of what we were doing, it was the three rules. And I, every team meeting, I sort of reinforced that by telling stories or having them tell stories about how that applied, working with clients or, or even with each other or with our vendors, because it makes a world of difference to, to follow those three rules. Did you ever have so someone come into your organization and not be able to follow those rules or you had to, you know, it happened too many times where you had to ask them to leave? So <laughs> luckily as a financial advisor, I never had to ask anybody to leave, yeah. but I did have people that opted out and you've heard this before, even though they say they're going to be okay with that culture, they aren't. And they find out that it makes them uncomfortable for whatever reason. 
And I never asked anybody to leave, knock on wood, but they just weren't comfortable. And, and that's part of being a good leader, too, I believe, is that you need to set expectations and then consistently follow that. Yeah. And you're a business coach. You know how that goes. Your job as a leader is to is to set the direction and then make make sure people stay with the direction. Absolutely. That's a good, yeah, that's powerful. I like, uh, I like those three rules. Those are all, if you do those three things consistently, there's a high probability you're going to have a good culture and you're going to service your client very well. So that's it's powerful. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you in regards to just your business, your services and your business in general, do any pitfalls, like what, what were challenges that you had that, that got you to that, that gate of being able to exit, but you had to get through First, I mean, anything stand out? Any cash flow issues? Any? It sounds like staff you did pretty well with. So sure. So I, the part about running a business is it's hard to get away from it, right? Yeah. So one of the challenges, and you know this probably better than most, is setting boundaries. So I made it a point not to do any client work on the weekends, right? Because clients are, are have needs and issues twenty four seven. But if I didn't set those boundaries, I found out that I was never away. And and so pretty early on, I made it a point and I would tell clients, not going to respond to your email, your voicemail or whatever. I'll get back to you on Monday or early next week. That was that was hard for me as the business grew. The second item that was that was one of the biggest challenges is just what you said about profit. So like a lot of your a lot of the people that have been on your podcast, the profit first mentality came to me at just the right time. Right. We would we didn't have enough money left at the end of the month, right? So we and usually it came quarterly, but we finally got into that, and that made all the difference because I stopped worrying about the cash flow part of it. Now I was not always good about paying myself and all of that, but we divided it up in a way that we set aside money for taxes and we set aside money for personal growth and all that. So profit was a challenge, and the third challenge in all of this was how did I exit? Because I, when I came from consulting and started finance, my financial firm, I created a job for myself. And I realized after a few years that I didn't really want to be the business. I wanted to be a manager. I wanted to lead the business. And, and so the third one was figuring out how to go from being the business to leading the business. And that's what ultimately led me to exiting after a, a lot of work. But the first part of setting boundaries, that's a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Because you're chief cook and bottle washer. And then as I went on, just finding out how to how to make money and, and some of it for me, not just all of it reinvested back into the business. Does cash flow have you down? Profit, not where you think it should be? Maybe it's the long hours. Let's meet to see if I can help. I bridge driving the financial performance of your business to hit growth and success targets. Book a complimentary meeting at meetforgrowth.com to get started now. Once again, that's meetforgrowth.com. I look forward to talking with you. And thanks for listening to the show. That was one of my, I think, biggest challenges early in my career being self-employed was you would have clients call you on a Saturday or a Sunday. And I always responded. I just felt like it was, you know, I wanted to make sure they knew I knew about it. At first, I would respond with trying to resolve the problem. Mm. 
And then I realized, wow, that that was really, you know, I was never really getting a break. And then I realized, you know, as long as I gave him a response and just said, hey, I want to let you know I received your email. Like you said, I'll either get back to you on Monday or I'll get back to you, you know, early in the week. That solved that challenge of always feeling like I had to be on 24-7. And I think it's, you know, most business owners, I think, have the same issue. And I think if you don't create those boundaries and set the expectations with the client, I was always fascinated. I'd have certain friends, colleagues that were in the CPA world in particular, and they'd say, oh, my clients are such a pain in the butt. Oh, they're so hard to deal with. Oh, they always want my time. And it it was really them more than their clients because my clients didn't do that. Like once I had kind of shared with them, like how, what worked for me, my clients, what worked for me in terms of cadence, they were really easy to work with. They were great people, easy to work with. I was yes. glad they were part of my community. So what's your thoughts around that? Like, did you ever have like really pain in that clients? And did you ever, ever, ever have to ask a client to leave or were you able to always manage them? So I will tell you that I had 13 business rules. So <laughs> I had three rules for dealing with people. And then I had 13 business rules. And rule number seven was no icky clients under the tent. How do you know though? Because sometimes they get into your ecosystem and you, you know, they start out really nice and then they kind of go south on you later in the journey. Well, it, it is a challenge, but what, what our process for onboarding a client always included the first upfront get acquainted session, no obligation. Let's find out what's going on with you. And after you've been in the business for a while, you get to, you get a sense of it. And I always told prospective clients, I never quoted a price at the first meeting. It was always, I, I need to think about it. I need to internalize it a little bit. I need to think a little bit about how I feel about this. And so as I got experience, I didn't have any icky people under the tent. Now, I will not ad- I will admit that that didn't always work because you, you do have some icky people. And that just, it just happens. And I, as religiously as I could, I would rank all of our clients by A, B, C, and D. And every year, the D clients, we would find a way to say, it's not you, it's me, it's not a good fit. I think you're terrific, but it's just not going to work out. Let me recommend some other people to you. And never had anybody blow back on that. And and it, it allowed us to sort of focus on the A, Bs, and Cs clients. Because I know this is a truism about business. If you're working with the wrong clients, the ideal clients are going by as you're spending time working with the non-ideal clients. And truly, this is this is not a comment about them. It's a it's a comment about me. They may be great people, but I just can't deal with you. And one of my clients, I'll tell you a real quick story. One of my clients had a really hard time with making emotional decisions. Something would be going on and I would get a call and, oh, we have to do something. We have to do something. Well, that's not in their best interest. And we talked about it a few times and and she, in this particular case, just couldn't get over it. And so I said to her, I'll call her Lisa for a moment. I said, Lisa, it's, I just can't do this. I'm not serving you well and you need somebody else. And she said to me, this was very interesting. She said to me, I've been thinking the same thing. And so, yeah, and I I had the courage to at least say that to her, and I was so glad I said it. And I referred her to another advisor that I knew that she might like better, and she went to she ended up working with him. I haven't kept in touch with her, and I haven't asked the advisor how it's worked, but you know this: life is short, and if you're working with clients who aren't a good fit, that makes life even shorter and not as nearly as much fun. Now, I hate to lose revenue; I'm a business person, but. I don't know. What about you? Have you ever fired a client? Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, 
you know, as a CPA, it was pretty easy for me when I had my CPA practice. It was, you know, there was really just a set criteria. I did the same thing. I had A, B, and C. You know, did I like them? I know that sounds crazy, but that was one of my first criteria. Did we connect on some level? Number two was, did they pay me timely? That was huge. Number three was, did they respect compliance? Because what I found is there were certain clients that would come to me in certain industries, in fact, that could care less about compliance. I wasn't the guy. I was charging five times what a door next to me was charging for the same end product in theory. It's just I was providing a lot higher level of expertise to it. So if you didn't value compliance, you're going to go pay five times less and just be on your way and and hopefully you never get audited. So that was my criteria. And if, if a client was an A, I wanted all A's really were my goal, honestly. So I had most A's, some B's. I will tell you that I'll switch gears now. As business coaching, it's been a little bit harder. I'm learning every year I learn. I've been doing this, I don't know, for five plus years now. The criteria, definitely, we have to be able to connect. I mean, that's huge. You know, I'll have certain people that come to me and their wavelength is just in such a different world. I won't be able to serve them well. So, you know, that that's still the same thing. But I think the other big thing with coaching is how likely are they willing to execute on what we're going over. Like how, you know, we all get excited, especially when someone engages me, they get excited, but the excitement's going to go away. And then there's kind of like the the roll up your sleeves of how are you going to get the job done? And how are we going to meet these objectives and do what we want to do in terms of you meeting your goals? And that's a little harder, I think sometimes for me to really clearly, because if I can see it, I definitely would tell someone, hey, I'm probably not going to be the right person for you. But it's hard to, for me to always see that. Like I always look for the best in people. And, and you know, there's a few short meetings before I get engaged and decide to move forward, both parties. That's the one where I still stumble on occasionally because it, you know, if people aren't going to execute, I just, it's hard. You, you invest a lot of time and I invest my kind of heart and soul in this. I know that sounds a little corny, but I, I would much rather honestly not take their money and not have them come into my ecosystem if if there's not going to be an impact. Because I want to have an impact. Like That's the exciting part. So I don't know. Long answer. Sorry to take up so much time. No, not at all. And, and I think, as you and I have talked about, look, the point of these podcasts is to share views that are helpful to your audience, right? Yeah. And I'm not one of those people that thinks I know all the answers. And I totally respect you and other business coaches. And I learn a lot too. So yeah. I think your points are really well taken. I did. Sorry, Steve. I will tell you, I, did, I have did when I when I was CPA and even in business coaching, I have had to um, sever some relationships just because it wasn't the right fit. And I, I'm kind of like you. I, I always think of Seinfeld whenever I, I think of it. It's it's not you, it's me. That Jerry right. signed, uh, I think it was George Costanza with girlfriends. And uh, uh so I always think of that line because it was one of those, you know, it's that typical thing where, hey, you know, for whatever reason, it's not it's not you, it's me type of conversation. Good. I, we are in alignment on that. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, you know, you, you did another teaser. You said you had 13 business rules. Can you share a few of them? I'd love to know some of them. You did number seven. Yeah. So these are oriented towards financial advisory business. So rule number one is it doesn't matter what you make. It matters what you keep. Yeah, that's true. And as an advisor, we would have that conversation with people. And what you keep has many implications for it. You know, if you spend everything you make, that that's not working, right? Uh, rule number two, you might find this interesting, is your house is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Because we would have people come to us and say, oh, you know, Zillow says my house is worth 1.75. And I'd say, well, have you tried to sell it yet? 
<laughs> and the part about that is because a lot of our clients, a significant chunk of their net worth is tied up in their house. Absolutely. And that also goes to rule number one, which is you can't eat your house. So that's because if you if you count on your house as part of your net worth and you say, look at how much I'm worth, you can't eat your house. And so there's a there's a, a bunch of those that are practical. Well, another one of my my favorite rules that we have as we go along, it was was one of the ones about investing, which is nobody knows the future. So if you're engaged in investing in a way that assumes you or anybody knows the future, good luck with that. Because <laughs> you don't know the future. And I don't I don't want to turn this into a financial advising conversation, but the the whole world is based on whole investing world is based on financial porn, which yeah. is uh, magazines and advertisements trying to convince you that they know the future. Right. And you just give me your money. I will make you rich. It doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. You're in, that's such a tough industry because, and this is good for any business owner, because we all have our challenges when it comes to clients and, and customers in terms of managing expectations, but your industry I would think more than anything because it's so tied into the economy and emotions. Like even right now, I think what it was last I read was it something like twenty six or I can't remember how many straight days of green days there have been. I haven't looked this last week, so maybe the streak's broken. But people get euphoric. They just and if you're investing for them, you're probably trying to keep a certain level of balance. And if the market's heated and super excited, people either feel like they're moving losing out or they if things go backwards, they feel like they're overexposed. So you, is that probably one of the most challenging things is just managing expectations? Well put. Anytime you want to become a financial advisor, you let me know, Tyler, I'll hook you up. <laughs> so we, we always told people that they swing between the twin poles of fear and greed. And we don't want them to go to either side. We want them somewhere in the middle. And the the twin poles the, of fear and greed do lead to an awful lot of errors. Um, fear of missing out, which is one of the ones you're just talking about. And dealing with the expectations is a large chunk of what we do. Or what we did as advisors is we want to set expectations. And too many clients in what they're doing, they, they let other people influence them. Um, I'm going to pick on doctors as an example. And we have had a number of doctors you can imagine, right? So the doctor works in a medical group. He or she works in a medical group or they're in the hospital. And when they're in the doctor's lounge, what are they talking about? You know, they're not talking about patients. They're talking about investments and things like that. And many times a doctor would come to me and they'd say, well, what do you think about fill in the blank? And it would be because they've heard this idea uh, from somebody and, oh yeah, I made a killing in, you know, I don't know, uh, commodities, futures, uh, um, hog bellies or something. And we would talk about, okay, but there's there's such a thing as a trade-off between risk and reward. And they're two sides of the same coin. So let's talk about hog belly futures. You know, yes, they are up. The downside is, is they can, you can lose your shirt just as quickly. And I would be the last person to tell you that I understand anything about hog belly futures. So unless you really know a lot about them, and this is rule number five, know what you own and why you own it. And that's part of dealing with expectations. If people aren't willing to do the work to find out about the ins and outs of whatever it is that they're doing, you shouldn't invest in it. But the, the behavioral side of it, you're probably aware of this, and maybe we'll have a conversation one day about behavioral finance, which has just come into the world. And I don't think you've had anybody on behavioral finance yet. Go find somebody and do a podcast on behavioral finance because 
the couple of people that won Nobel Prizes in it is, and it's just become part of this now, where where the the behavioral side of investing and your money is playing just as important role as the technical side of it. So yes, the behavioral finance side of it is a big chunk of what it is that we did. Yeah. I can't think of his name. His name's escaping me, but he's written about four books. I've read two out of the four on he's kind of the pioneer, if you will, on behavioral yes. finance. I have to I'll have to look him up and put him in the show notes. But he's there it is a very fascinating area. You know, I could turn the show into just talking about just investment advising, though, because, and I'm not going to, but just between Bitcoin and NFTs and just how much money people have nowadays, you've seen so many things, the change in technology, this whole fee-only structure from used to be a percentage of your assets more is what I think, you know, mostly we used to see many years ago. It seems like so much things have evolved. I feel like we could talk about that. I'm going to leave that, though. Maybe that's a future conversation if I ever do another podcast topic. But what I really want to talk about is is segueing into exiting. What did you need to do to position your company to exit? Like, Were you thinking all along, hey, I'll position it for exit? Or at what point do you start doing things that makes it more more interesting to a prospective buyer? Great, great question. I was not thinking of exiting when I started the business. I created a, a job for myself. I was trying to replace income. And I also wanted more freedom. I switched jobs from the consulting world to running my own financial advisory practice when our son was born, because as a consultant, you're on the road a lot. And I was based in the Seattle area, so you can't go west and you can't go north. So you ended up going south or east. And so I would travel 50% of the time to clients all over the U.S. And when our son was born, that isn't what I wanted to do anymore. Uh, We were pretty sure we were going to have just one. He's a great young man, 26 years old. Um, working on his PhD at the University of Texas in Austin. A good kid, done everything he needs to do in spite of me, I will tell you that, <laughs> but a good young man. But I wanted to be around raising him and, and traveling, I couldn't. So I started a business to give myself income. And then I realized about five years before I sold the business, wait a minute, this thing has value. And so I had a great business coach and he kind of finally said, well, it's about time you woke up to that. So the biggest change was starting to think about the business from a buyer's perspective. And that is, I'll I'll use this, I'll use the house analogy, probably overuse it. But when you own a house, you think it's a castle. And when somebody's looking at it, they think it's a hovel. And you have to think about it from their perspective when you're selling the house. So real estate agents will tell you, the, the money you get back by improving the kitchen and the master bath, that's a good thing. Don't worry about replacing the carpet in the third bedroom, as an example, when you're trying to get set, when you're trying to sell your house. Same thing with the business. You look at it from a buyer's perspective and what do they care about? And that was the big, the big mental change for me is to think about what would somebody care about? And so with my coach and my own curiosity, I started to dig into it. What would a buyer, what would a buyer think about my business? And it's hard because ego gets in the way. You think, oh, you know, I built this and I'm proud of it and it's me and I'm great and people think I'm wonderful and yada, yada, yada. But a buyer doesn't have that emotional attachment. So detaching myself from what I thought of the business and thinking about it from the perspective of a buyer was, was the big change for me. And when I looked at the business five years before I sold it, it wasn't pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I had an ugly house. 
If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. And when I looked at the business five years before I sold it, it wasn't pretty. (laughs) (laughs) I had an ugly house. Yeah, yeah. That's hard to do, though. Like you said, you're so emotionally attached just to stand back. Is the business coach the person that kind of helped you stand back and look at it? Or did you just kind of wake up and go, hey... I just got to have an honest assessment here. If it were my money, this is what I'd want out of the business. So I doubt that he will ever listen to this. So I'm going to throw him under the bus and say (laughs) he was of no use whatsoever. Oh, what a jerk. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Not really. And he's still my coach for about 12 or 13 years. And he's very much like you probably are, which is he doesn't lead as much as support and follow. And when I finally, that finally dawned on me, he was able to help me look at the business and point out some things for me to do to, to decide on, on what it was that needed to be done. So it was collaborative. And to this day, I will tell you, anybody that's listening, I could not have done my business without a coach. That's so awesome. Because I have so many blind spots and you don't even know what you don't know. Right. And that that is just so valuable. So my financial advisor business really took off when I embraced the coach. And my belief was you either follow what you agree to do or you don't. Don't say you're going to do X because you and the coach agree on it and then don't do it. So I was probably to start with your worst enemy because I thought I knew a lot. But finally, the light went on and I realized that I didn't and he was very valuable. So when we were looking at the business, there are, I'll throw some statistics at you, that 70 to 80% of, of small businesses fail to sell even when they're for sale. Now, this is a number that comes from Forbes and other sources, but think about that. 70 to 80% don't sell. Have you heard that number? Yeah, I've heard, I know it's super high. I, you know, the figure always changes a little bit, but eight out of 10 doesn't surprise me. I mean, a lot of them, that's probably included in that figure is the circumstances that they're selling too. Because a lot of times divorce, you know, uh, terminal illness or even major illness can force those hands and people just don't think about exiting. They just, to your point, like they, the big one is overvaluing. I mean, most people think their business is worth 10 times more and it's like, it's kind of hard. It's, it's a difficult conversation when someone thinks their business is worth $2 million and it's, it's losing money. <laughs> Well, I, I would give you the uh, the A-plus remark on that because the research shows, and I'm very research-oriented, I'm, I'm a great reader, and I've always done, so I dug into it, yeah. and there are five reasons businesses don't sell. And the first one is unrealistic expectations about the sale price. Wow, wow. The second one, which might be sort of surprising, is <laughs> inequality or lack of earnings. Right. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Some of it is what's called SED, seller expense, discretionary expenses, SDE, seller discretionary expenses. And so the profit isn't there. And a business that's buying you is buying it for one of two reasons. They're either buying it for the income potential or they're buying it for strategic reasons. 
vast majority of businesses want to see a steady rate of growth. They want it and not revenue, but profit. And you and I could talk one day if you'd like about what is profit, because most small business owners don't really know what profit is. Right. So true. The third reason businesses don't sell is poor records and um, record keeping, because a buyer wants to see everything organized and available to them. I had a client that I was talking to that other than filing their taxes every year, they had almost no financial record keeping at all. And I had to tell the person, I'm sorry, this is just not, you're, you're going to have to do a lot of work to, to get in. And they hated that. They did not like that comment about processes. The fourth reason businesses don't sell is inflexible negotiations. So 50% of businesses that fail, fail at the due diligence stage. And that's because many times, because the owner has got to, you know, it's my way, it's my business, I, you know. And, and as a result of that, a buyer will walk away. And the last reason of the top five is a lack of planning. What I mean by that is that when you're going down the journey of selling a business, there are going to be bumps and things you don't expect. And if you have not done a good job of planning for those, you will fail the exit because buyers will walk away. So when I started to look at my business, I realized one, although I, I, I thought the value of my business was pretty good. I didn't value it properly. I didn't look at it the way a buyer would. I thought the relationships that I had were going to be enough to carry it through. But in the financial world, people can leave anytime. And uh, so I had to do some work in that area. number of other things. We didn't do a very good job of documenting our processes. We did things a certain way, but we didn't do a good job of documenting it. And then last but not least, I had to get okay with the buyout terms that, and you've heard this, I know, uh, there's what's called an earnout, and in the financial world, earnouts are common. And one offer I got was a hundred percent earnout. Wow! I didn't take that offer. Yeah, I don't blame you, because <laughs> earnouts often now probably not in your industry, but in many industries, earnouts you really you know my general guidance is expect expect that you're not going to earn your earnout. And, and this probably not true in yours so much, but in many industries, the earnout's just kind of a spot pie in the cut. Like ours, when I showed the staffing firm, we didn't make our earnout. It was the number they, the threshold they put was just, we would have had to put it, hit it so far out of the park to get the earnout. It just, yeah, it would have been crazy. Well, the, uh, it's again, one of those things to keep in mind that your business is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Yeah. And I tell my my clients and my prospective clients that it, the, the price is the price, but it's the terms that are important. And I think your advice is a good one about earnouts. I sold my business in three parts. And one of them was 100% earnout. Another one was a note. And another one was basically income oriented. And I did that knowingly. It was, I, but I originally thought, oh, I was just going to get all the cash up front. Didn't work that way. Right, right. Yeah, fascinating. You know what I love? I, so I've been researching about you and now you're into this exit business coaching where you help companies uh, prepare for exit. What I love that you did looking at your website is, and I've never seen this before, you have, I think about seven different options if I'm remembering correctly, maybe it's five, but you have, hey, if you want to think, let's say 36 months out, this is the service and you disclose your prices up front, which is awesome. Hey, if you're in a hurry, uh, you have a hurry model. And it's really cool that you kind of set it up 
where someone can come in kind of like a menu and go, yeah, this is where I'm at in my journey. And I can, you know, utilize your services to help help you get them where they want to go. Where did you get that idea? It's such a cool idea to kind of lay that all out. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So do you know the name David Miller, the story brand guy? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, Donald Miller. Donald Miller. Excuse me, Donald yeah, Miller. That's, yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah. I, knew, I knew it was a D. Yeah. <laughs> so in my business, when I was fully running it, I adopted his approach to doing a lot of everything else. Uh-huh. And I sort of applied that. I did apply it when I did the website for the new business. And look, if you're a if you're a, a owner of a small business, you want to know what it's going to cost. And so there are two factors. There's time and money. And I wanted to fully dis- disclose that under the, the full transparency rule. And I have found that to be true. I had a guy that was selling his business and he needed to be out within a year. Some his personal circumstances had changed and he needed to be out within a year. So we have we call that the SOS model, which is save our stuff. And we did that right away. And then the more, but the more normal way of doing it is, well, two to five years. And it just depends on where you're at. And when we're working with a client, the second item that we assess, the second item that we do is we assess the business. And part of that is to determine what needs to be done to get the house ready to sell. Do we need to, do we need to redo the kitchen? Do we need to do the bath? Does it need a roof? What does it need? And so depending on the client's interest in maximizing their return will dictate how long it's going to take. Some businesses, I've never met a business that was ready to go immediately. It just, maybe you have, but I've never seen one. There's always stuff that needs to happen. Absolutely. And and that dictates the time that's going to be required. So typically it's uh, one to two years. What do you find uh, in terms of, helping clients that come to you, what do you see most often that needs to be improved or would, you know, kind of like think of the kitchen or the the bathroom or whatever? I mean, what, what usually needs to be addressed first? It's so dependent on the industry. Okay. So uh, for example, in the financial industry, the books and records have to be kept updated for, for compliance purposes. So that's rarely an issue. They have everything they need, right? The most common one is the first one. I will tell you that, which is unrealistic expectations about the value. And that's a hard one to crack. Sounds like you've had some experience with it. How do you tell somebody your expectations is 2 million and I think more like it's 750,000? It's That's a tough one. It is. That's the most common one because numbers get thrown around and multiples get thrown around and, and we sort of let the you know fear and greed, the greed takes over and right. that's what they want. And I, I think the other... Part that's hard about that. And I apologize again for interrupting you, but the part thing that's hard about that is even if you say, "Hey, okay, business owner says it's worth a million, maybe the numbers say it's worth five hundred thousand. Unless you have a buyer that's willing to pay you for that, even at the five hundred thousand, the value is only what someone's willing to pay it for. It's kind of back to that Zillow thing. Like if you own some bil- business that's out in nowhere's land and there's really not much upside to it, even if you valued at that. There has to be a buyer willing to pay you for that. Yep. That is, that is the, the first rule when I was an advisor. It's second rule. It's only worth what somebody's willing to pay it. Yeah. And and that's a that's a challenge in, in going along the line. So when we do an assessment, one of the assessment elements is who are potential buyers? 
And many times, so you can sell a business by yourself or you can sell it through a broker. Those are the two most common approaches, right? And if you're going to sell it by yourself or even with a broker, the first place to look at is who are your competitors? So as an example, when I sold my business, I went out and started talking to a whole bunch of other advisors and said, I'm thinking about it. This is confidential. Please don't tell anybody. Obviously, I couldn't hold them to it. But are you interested in are you interested in growing through acquisition or are you going to grow organically? What are you thinking about it? So I talked to, oh, probably 10 different advisory firms to find out what they were interested in. Real quick side note. About the second one that I talked to was an advisor that I've known for a long time. And she asked me a question that just floored me. I wasn't ready for it. And she said, well, I need a, a, a census of all of your clients. And I need what the estimated value is or income is going to be from those. And I need to know who your top 10 clients are. And I need to know how long they've been with you. And I was like, I'm not ready for this. So I, I went back and that was valuable insight because I went back and then got all those answers. She didn't buy the business, so it didn't matter. But finding who you're going to sell your business to. Okay, this takes me in a direction that I mentioned to you in an email I sent. The fit was really important to me. I didn't. I wasn't so much interested in maximizing value as I was in, interested in a good fit, what we call winning on the way out. So the buyer, the seller, the, the team, and the clients all have to be a good fit. And as I talked to other companies, as, as we were talking about it, I started to focus more and more on that, about what is their culture like? What are the, how do they treat each other? How do they treat clients? And it's not an exact science, but I just felt like I had an obligation to my teammates and to my, and to my clients to find a good fit for them. And I'll just tell you this, it maybe doesn't make all the most sense in the world, but it's a core value for me, which is how people get treated. And so I may have left money on the table, but we only lost one client in the transition. We only lost one client, huge, huge. which is a re remarkable statistic. And yeah, it's amazing. mostly because we were looking for fit. Yeah. I love that win on the way out. I haven't heard of that before. I know when we were selling the staffing firm, we had multiple parties interested in our firm. And the one that we ultimately went with was for exactly what you said. It was about fit. It, they they gave us guarantees that the entire staff was safe. Nobody would ever be asked to leave. Even the admin staff, which was pretty cool. They said they'd have a, a spot for the admin staff. And they just were aligned. They were very, it was a very large multi-billion dollar company, but they kind of had a, a family vibe to it. So that made sense. Now, we did have some people that expressed interest to us in us, and it felt like they were in a boiler room. I mean, you know, we had, I have so many funny stories. I can't go into them now, but just, you know, that whole selling process and the people that express interest in you is very fascinating. We had one party that was from China. They didn't speak English and they had, we had to get up at four o'clock in the morning to talk with them. I'll never forget this. And uh, they didn't speak English. So we had an interpreter. We went through a three hour meeting all over. It wasn't Zoom back then. It was just over phone. And uh, at the end, they said, well, we're very interested. We want to buy you. I don't even know to this day if it was a scam. They said, we want to buy you, but we want you to hold your firm for six months and not sell it to anyone until... Uh, and we're like, no, we want to sell it now. We're not. We're not. We've got offers on the table. You know, We're not here to wait six months. So just all kinds of weird stuff happens. Now, when I sold my CPA firm, it was probably much more how yours went. You had a lot of uh, practitioners come in and it was a lot... A lot more predictable, I guess I say. Not <laughs> not as much weird stuff as the recruiting and staffing firm. 
I, yeah, that's a it's a great story. And that's why we called it winning on the way out. Yeah, I like that. The driver for me was I wanted everybody to be a winner, the buyer, uh, my teammates, the clients, and me. And my business coach, back to him, uh, pushed back a little bit on that, as he should have. And he said, really? Really? And I said, yeah, it's, I feel so strongly about it. And I think he was pushing back on it at appropriate just to make sure. Because the worst thing that can happen is that you sell your business and then have regrets. True. And That's so true. I knew that I would have a regret if I didn't follow that. It was easier to follow the money, right? But it wasn't really wasn't the way that I was set up, even though I was a financial advisor, for God's sake. But it was really important to me that everybody be treated well. And congratulations on your selling the firm and and doing it in a way that you felt good about. Did you have any regrets when you were done? Yeah, you know, that was one thing in my research and just over the years of having been a CPA. I know one of the most common things is that people regret selling their company or they regret the way it played out. So I think I went into the second one in particular with just like, hey, everything I agree to or we agree to is what we're happy with now. And if different information comes along in the future, it we made a great decision based on the information we had at that point. So no, I really don't have any regrets. I mean, truthfully, after we sold, we were kind of worried you know, at that time, Donald Trump was coming into the office and we were kind of like thinking, oh my God, you know, could the economy tank? Could things go crazy? Here's our beautiful asset could go down to like next to nothing and we'd have to rebuild it. So we were a little bit anxiety of that was kind of part of our decision. And the market ended up exploding and it's been nothing. But I think for the most part, I've gone up. I think the business has almost gone up like 60% from where we sold it. But that's life. I mean, that we went with the decision that we had at the time. And no, so long answer to say no. I mean, do you have any, do you stand back and have any regrets in terms of the decisions that you're making as far as exiting? The short answer is no. And I would put a caveat on it the way you did, which is what I knew then, you make a decision based on what you know then. Yeah. And things can change over time. I can't worry about it. I'm ecstatic over getting out at the time that I did the way that I did. I'm having more fun now than probably when, other than when I was early in my business. It was just time for me to go and everybody ended up well. And I was pleasantly surprised that all the teammates ended up where they needed to be, right? And one of my youngest advisors, a guy that I chose and trained, ended up buying a third of the business. And I have just about weekly or monthly anyway, phone calls with him and he's thriving. And we talk about it all the time, which is finally he got rid of the dead weight. (laughs) (laughs) And so no regrets at, at, at this point. There's some things that I think about, about mistakes that I made as I went along. Sure. Let me just mention this again for the benefit of your, of your audience. The two things that surprised me the most when I sold my business was, one, it's really hard to run a business and try to sell it at the same time. It's just, it's like having another job and there's conflicts and that the last year was miserable for me. What, What was your experience in terms of running a business while you were selling it? Did you have some of that as well? Well, there's two parts to that. One, I would say selling it is super stressful because we were trying to keep it confidential and um, we weren't ready to scare it. You know, we didn't want to scare the staff if things didn't play out. So it felt like you were kind of cheating on someone. And so that was that was stressful. You know, you had another girlfriend at the same time. It, that's what it felt like. Yeah. And then just, you know, the needs, the questions, the 
you know, everything that was asked. Now, the good news is because I'm a CPA, I think we were pretty well prepared. You know, financials were just spot on. Uh, documentation was really good. Everything was scanned where it was supposed to be. So I think I think our story was really strong and we had consistent years of profit. So it made for an easy, you know, when you have that trending and it's going up, it made for a really good story. I would say the, the thing that was the harder part in trying to run a business was after... Uh, when you're going through due diligence and then ultimately selling because we got acquired by a large company and they literally 20 different employees pounced on us for their own interests, whether it be HR or accounting or billing or POs or legal, all of them trying to pull your systems into their systems. And it was overwhelming. And so for a year after being acquired, it was just like working five jobs, it felt like. you know, Not only your main job of trying to keep the business on course, but then trying to cater to everyone that's trying to integrate you into their, into their department. So that was what I found more challenge, the most challenging and very hard to deal with. That's good. And it's a good message for the people that are listening is that yeah. running a business and selling it is not oh. easy. And you, I didn't expect that. I don't know why. Yeah. The second item that was a big challenge for me was the emotional ups and downs of selling it. Yes. So shaking your head, you you probably experienced the same thing, right? You're the first one that said that. I always so the emotional part for me was probably the hardest. At one minute we thought the deal would die, it was gonna go, it was gonna yeah, one minute you started counting the numbers and digits in your bank account, and then the next minute you were looking at your empty bank account. Uh, you know, it's just a roller coaster. You know, you're the first one that I've because it was so you know, I had a partner in this that was the majority of the owner, and we used to share these stories. So I had someone to share this with. But every time I I talk with someone that sold their business, they seem very chill about it. I feel like they're holding back. I don't know how because they're not telling they're, they're not telling the whole story. Yeah, it's such a life changing event, right? Yeah. So you did have a lot of anxiety, huh? Just as you said, the ups and the downs. One minute I'm ecstatic, the next minute I don't want to go to work anymore. Right. The next minute, yeah. So one of the things people tell me or ask me when I'm when I say that is they say, well, what do you do to deal with that emotional ups and downs? And my I, I'll share this with you. First, the thing I tell people is expect it. Don't right. expect this to be non-emotional. This is not a business decision solely. There's going to be there's going to be emotions. In it. And the second thing is have a support group around you. It can be your wife, your your partner, a friend, a coach, whatever. And the, you need a support group when you're doing that. That's all there is to it. If you try to do it yourself, it's going to be painful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. That's a great point. Like like I said, I had, you know, I had my peer, my colleague that we could kind of complain and and cry and 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 dream together, which it yeah. does make a big difference. Well, this is cool. You know, I've had an awesome conversation with you. Uh, the amount of wisdom I can tell you add to your clients just blows my mind. If there's anyone out there thinking about exiting, I highly encourage you uh, to go to Steve's website. Now, this is for a free report, simplebusinessexit.com. Check that out. His main webpage too, you, you may want to check out bridgegatepartners.com, bridgegatepartners.com. That's your main website. But to get the free report, simplebusinessexit.com. I'll put those in the show notes, Steve, at thinktyler.com. Hey, anything, any final things you'd like to say? I'd love to having you and I'd love to have you again in the future. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. That, and the last couple of items that I would say is plan early. That's Time is, time is really an important resource. And even if you are not expecting to do something within the next few years, still do a plan because, you know, stuff happens. And just as you said, Tyler, people 
may have to sell or exit sooner. And so plan early, plan early. That would be my bottom line item. Does cash flow have you down? Profit, not where you think it should be? Maybe it's the long hours. Let's meet to see if I can help. I bridge driving the financial performance of your business to hit growth and success targets. Book a complimentary meeting at meetforgrowth.com to get started now. Once again, that's meetforgrowth.com. I look forward to talking with you. And thanks for listening to the show. And so plan early, plan early. That would be my bottom line item. That's a great one. And I honestly think there isn't too early. I mean, in a perfect world, it's really when you start your business. But even if it's you know later on, the earlier you start, the better. And I totally agree. I rarely meet people that that start with the end in mind. I know that's common to be said. I rarely meet small business owners that start with the end in mind. It, it evolves over time. Now, there are some, and particularly the serial entrepreneurs, some of whom I've heard on your show. But most small business owners really don't start a business with the idea of selling it that I have found. How about you? Yeah. No, most don't. And, and you know where I... Um, because of my financial background, where it really hurts me a lot, is a lot of owners don't really invest in getting their bookkeeping done accurately and correctly. And a lot of times, it's not their own fault. It's the people they hire. Uh, you know, they don't really they hire people that don't really do a great job, so their books are really messy, and it just doesn't tell a good story. And it costs uh, either cleanup or money if that story doesn't show over time. And so that's the one that really kind of. You know, and just file structures, legal agreements, even how you uh, take care of your accounting system in terms of titling, in terms of titling customers and vendors. The cleaner you do everything and the more organized you do it, the better story that presents to a prospective buyer. And they just like a car, you know, you go and take your car to the detail detailer before you sell it. People love that feeling of that a brand new car feel. It's kind of like that with a business. Good analogy. Okay, I'm going to borrow that one. I'll, I'll give you attribution. <laughs> oh, please. But I like that one. I, I like that one. Well, hey, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the future. And I hope you have a great rest of the week. Thanks, Tyler. I've, I've had a blast. I really enjoyed the conversation and we're kindred spirits in many ways. And I have enjoyed it a lot. And I've got a, a new analogy that I can use. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Take care, okay? You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. DC, I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the Interviews. Electric Acid. Hey, guys. It's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Love.
available now wherever you listen to music. One dot to no star.